But we're going to continue this morning in a brand new sermon series uh, that we started up. And just so you know how this has worked out, so up until now, we did everything we planned to do, right? But when we got to this week, I wasn't sure what we should do next, what we were going to go into. We're going to be getting into a book study um, pretty quickly here, but I want to spend a week or two because when we started all this, it was like seven, eight weeks ago uh, before this whole lock, stay-at-home thing happened. And, and we felt called, and I felt called, to continue to walk the path that God had laid out for us in faith, trusting that he would use his timing and his purpose and his plans for his people. And so we've been preaching through Easter and what Easter means to us. And we were preaching before that about how we can be incarnational and, and serve with Jesus and love people where they are. And, and, and now we're kind of at the place where I thought, you know, let's take a minute and just talk directly about what we've been dealing with. Ryan just shared a great introduction to this, but what we've been dealing with as a community of faith and all across the globe, like it's so easy for us to get caught up in our own things. And so we're calling this series Not Afraid, and it might be one week, it might be two weeks. That'll probably be it. We're not gonna spend a lot of time here. We're gonna jump into a book study. But if there's something this morning that kind of triggers like uh, some, a thought in you and you're like, this would be really interesting. I, I really have a, a question or a struggle with this particular aspect, would you let me know? I would love to hear from you because we can extend that like to next week if we need to talk more about this. But today we're going to talk about a few things. And, and I want to lay out very clearly what the goal of this morning's uh, time is. I want to hit this coronavirus and religious liberties things head on. Right? So what we found is we had this, this virus and we, we all saw the danger coming from other places, countries, and we were concerned and there was all these kind of actions taken. But now it's been like six weeks and people are asking questions. Well, what does this mean for our religious freedom? And what does this mean for how we worship? And that's actually why Ryan's call last week that God's timing was so perfect. It was so instructive to me. And I thought, let's just stop and think about this uh, deeply. I want to tell you what we're kind of expecting here. The plan is that we're going to uh, see what Scripture says, right? And then we're going to dig in really deep on a couple of passages of Scripture that are directly related to this. It's always remarkable to me when we say, well, what should we do? What should we do? That God has written out his expectations for his people. But we have to be really clear and discerning when we dig into that. And, and we're going to pray this morning that we do that right. And then lastly, we're going to try to apply those things or see how those are applied in some practical ways throughout Christian history. So with that kind of uh, over uh, us, we're going to start with prayer. We always do that God would inspire us to understand his word. And then we're just going to jump in this morning and, uh, and see what God has for us. Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you again for the chance to have the Fickers join us this morning from 2,000 miles away, Lord. What a blessing that is. I pray that as we continue in worship this morning and we sang songs and we've heard great mission reports about what you're doing in the world, that we would now turn our hearts towards you in our own lives, that we would actually position ourselves as missionaries in this culture and begin to ask questions about what this virus means and what our response looks like and how we can be called to be faithful to you in spite of everything happening around us, Lord. We pray against the spirit of fear, and we pray for a right fear of who you are. And we pray, Lord, for a, an enduring hope as we move forward. May you be our Savior as we worship you as God. May you continue to save your people. This morning, as we get into your word, I ask you for wisdom. I, I profess, I confess, I have no wisdom of my own, Father. And so what we need is you to provide wisdom to us, each of us where we are. Would you instruct us from your word? Would you empower us by the Holy Spirit to understand it? And not only that, but would you use your, your Holy Spirit to teach us and then to cause us, to compel us to live it out? We wanna be faithful to you. Help us in this endeavor. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, 
we were, we were singing that song this morning. It was so great. We didn't do any coordination. And that, that one verse said, if creation still obeys you, so will I. I think, man, what a great lyric. If creation still obeys you, so, was I. so will I. You know what was funny? We were watching uh, Ryan and Katie give the update. The birds. <laughs> the birds were singing. I mean, the birds in the background on that feed were louder than Ryan was so many times. And they were swooping through the background. I don't know if you saw that, right? It was wild. And I thought, what would happen if someone said to the birds, stop singing? Or to the sun, stop shining? Or to the trees, stop growing? Or to the flowers, stop blooming? I think in many ways that's a tension we feel because I think we feel as part of God's creation, we've been told to stop, stop, stop. Talking to Ryan was wild because one of the things I realized is that I've done a lot of conflating of my faith and my citizenship. I've done a lot of conflating of, of my understanding of the gospel and my understanding as an American citizen. I don't know if you um, have been confused about that at all, but this has really given me time to think about it. W- what is happening to the rest of the world? What is happening to other people? And what is, how do they interpret what they're experiencing? Because we interpret it a very specific way in this country. I don't know if you remember this commercial. I'm going to show my age a little bit here. But I remember this commercial, and there was a king on a throne, and there was a jester running around, and the king had a snack. The king was going to eat a snack, and he was sitting on his throne. He was going to eat this, you know, and he had his peanut butter. You guys know where I'm going with this. Do you know what I'm talking about? He's had his peanut butter in one hand, and the, the jester, the clown, was kind of jumping around in front of him. And in the other hand, he had his chocolate. Let me tell you about Revelation. And and, and, and he was sitting on a stone, he's laughing, and the jester bumped into him, and you know what happened? He stuck his chocolate in his peanut butter. Anybody remember this? Yeah, a few people remember. You remember it? <laughs> and he gets upset, and he goes, you put your chocolate in my peanut butter. And the uh, jester goes, you put your peanut butter in my chocolate. And then the king pulled it out, and he goes, Delicious. <laughs> And then there was what? Reese's. Reese's peanut butter cups commercial. Here's the epiphany. When I was a kid, it made me want Reese's. I'm like, I want Reese's. When I was an adult. I'm like, wait, you can put chocolate in peanut butter? That's so good. I've tried to stop. I think this is kind of what we've done with Christianity and being an American. We've stuck the Americanism right in the peanut butter of Christianity, or we've stuck the Christianity of right in the peanut butter of Americanism, and there they live, and then we taste them together as American citizens, and we can't tell them apart anymore. It goes together like peas and carrots, um, like steak and seasoning, or, or, or like, I don't know, what's your combination? What is it? Your, your favorite combinations of things. And what I realize is that for many of us, we can't, dis- we can't figure it out anymore. Where does our freedom start as a Christian, and where does our freedom end as an American? What does that even mean? And so we're going to spend some time this morning asking those questions, because this is not the first time that Christians have asked this question in history. It's not the first time this has happened. Now, I want to warn you something right now. I won't preach Americanism. And it's not because I'm not proud to be an American. I thank God I was born in this country. But I can tell you this, that I'm called to preach the gospel, and, and so are you. And we have to be really clear what we're proclaiming when we proclaim the gospel. As a matter of fact, one of the things that God has taught us through world missions is that sometimes we preach the American gospel in foreign countries. Like if your house is bigger, if you have better supplies, if you have electricity, if you have running water, if you don't sleep on dirt floors, well, then, then you'll be saved. But that's a lie. 
That's not the gospel. And as I said to you before, church, if it's not the gospel there, it's not the gospel anywhere. Ryan said something interesting this morning. He said, it's like we're finally all on the same page, third world countries and first world countries. And the gospel is always on the same page. It's no different depending on where you are. So we're gonna jump in here. I'm gonna share some scriptures with you and we're gonna kind of go quickly through some things that come to mind to me right away when I start thinking, what is our response to the, vir- to the virus? And in particular, what's the response to the stay-at-home orders as American citizens and as Christians? What does our response look like? And so some scriptures are coming to me and I'm like, okay, let's just think about it. So the first one I wanna share with you is this. John 10, 10. John 10, 10, Jesus says this. I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. That's Jesus' purpose in coming, to give us life to the fullest. And I'm like, yes, I want a full life in Jesus. But I forget that it begins this way. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give them life and to the fullest. So there's a spiritual battle happening there, right? Or, or maybe we can look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says this. Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, right? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. But then he goes on, so don't be again burdened with the yoke of slavery to sin. So yes, those two verses, it's like freedom, life. And I'm like, yeah. And I'll tell you what, church, it feels very American. I could just see the flag waving in the background as I'm riding my Harley down the highway. Freedom and life. That's what I want. But both of those teachings are couched in the spiritual battle. What does that mean? Here's another one then. Came to mind this week. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. I'm going to turn there. You should have it up on your screens. And we're going to get into some text in a minute. But I just want to kind of give like some, some things that came like right away. Chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus teaches this. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. That came to mind. I thought, how should we deal with the, um, the, the, the government? How should we deal with the, uh, the freedoms being removed from us? And then this verse came to mind. And I was encouraged because other brothers and sisters said it came to mind for them too. I'm like, well, that's interesting. What's the pattern about? Be as shrewd as snakes, but as innocent as doves. But I want to remind you the way it starts. 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. We said a few weeks ago, what do sheep do among wolves? They get eaten. (laughs) It's a high-risk game. It's a dangerous sport. Therefore, because you're at danger, because you're at risk, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. You know, the word there, the the word snake is actually serpent. Be as shrewd as a serpent. I thought, now what a strange combination. I just want you to think about the peanut butter and chocolate combination of snakes, serpents, and doves. What, what do they have in common? You, I would think, oh, nothing, nothing, right? I dug in because I want to know, what does that word shrewd mean? It means to be sensible, to be prudent, to be intelligent, to be discreet, to be cautious. I want you to think if you've ever seen a snake actually hunt something, the way a serpent hunts something, it's very sly. You know, the funny thing is, and this has been said well by you know, many uh, Nat Geo uh, shows and everything else, that the snake is looking for a way out. They, they don't want to attack you unless they have to or unless that's their plan. But most of the time, they're just, they're just trying to be stealthy, right? So, so Jesus is like, you're going to be in danger, so 
be thinking, be discerning about what you're gonna face. And then the second is be as innocent as doves. And innocence here means pure or simple, not mixed, unsophisticated, sincere, blameless. So you have these two images. One is a serpent. It's like looking. Do you ever look at a snake? It just looks like it's, gonna, it's up to no good. That's why they usually get killed in my house. You're no good. You ever seen a, a dove? You probably think, well, I haven't seen many doves, maybe at a wedding or whatever. Have you ever seen a pigeon? Because you know that's what a dove is, a pigeon. It's just a white pigeon. Those things are so stupid. They're like, huh, huh, huh? <laughs> you, you go to any park, you could hunt dove for the rest of your life and get them all. <laughs> they're, they're clueless. They're walking around the world like, um, and there's, and there's a, isn't that interesting? A purity about doves. Now, I know there's a temple offering, there's a whole thing, being innocent and all, the sacrifice. But, you know, think about that, right? Like, you got this kind of crafty, that's what Jesus wants us to be, and also goofy, innocent. I don't know. Pure. What, what would the, what would the um, naive almost, right? A dove. Don't you know I could kill you right now? Okay, I'm a dove, I don't know. What are you doing? Those are the models that Jesus lays out for how we're called to go into this dangerous world. So, so now, with the, kind of those overviews, I wanna dig into a couple texts that are directly applicable to what we're talking about. Now, I wanna say, I've been praying all week, and I know you've been praying as well. Hopefully, many of you have been praying for me. And just that we would rightly discern God's word this morning, we're gonna turn to Romans chapter 13, and we're going to dig in. We're going to spend time in two, uh, two um, different books this morning, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Don't turn it yet. We're going to get there in a minute. But we're just going to talk through this. What I want to do is I want to read it together, and then I want to talk about the, the profound teaching that's found in these two texts that directly apply to our current situation. Hear the word with me. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities because there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do, do so will bring judgment on themselves. Because rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to you to do good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants. Who gives their full time to governing? Verse 7, give everyone what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Revenue, revenue. Respect, respect. Honor, honor. And finally, verse eight, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled all the law. So Paul, in the middle of this letter to the church in Rome, he's like, and here's how you should deal with authorities. Now, I had heard someone say before I studied this, well, he's talking about a particular kind of authority and all that. And so I'm like, I'm just going to dig into the text and see what it says. And, and so I want to kind of walk through that now with you and talk about it. I want you to see, first of all, that he calls us souls. The word in the NIV says everyone must submit, but the Greek says every soul must be subject 
right? Like that kind of gesture dancing around the king, right? Like to bow, to, to submit uh, to authority. Not bow as worships, so don't get off on a rabbit trail, but to submit to the authority, to um, be subject to the authorities placed over them. Why? Every soul must submit. Why? It says it right there in verse one. Because there is no authority except that which God has established or arranged. And so the first thing that we have to understand when we're talking about should we obey authority or not, should we submit to authority or not, is this. We have to have a, a recognition that God is over everything. And that any submission that we choose to do as believers is a submission to the authority that he has put in place for us. And I'll just say this, by the way, when this all first kicked off, we were saying, are we gonna keep meeting or not meeting? Can the government even do this? And our leadership team prayed about it. And one of the verses that came to mind was Romans 13, the chapter that came to mind, Romans 13, submit to authorities, basically out of reverence for Christ, right? That we're gonna honor their request, especially initially, because we you know, believe God has placed them there sovereignly. That's something you have to decide in your own life if you believe is true, that God has arranged the authorities for a purpose, let every soul be subject to the authorities above him or her. What does the word say? Power and authority only comes by God as he has arranged all the existing authorities. And so it's a double, it says it twice there. It says there's no power in the world that God has not ordained. You're like, what? What does that even mean? And then they all exercise authority because he's arranged it. I can think of a bunch of times in history where there's not been great leadership, not been good authority. And we're gonna talk about that. But we must first recognize that he has ordained authority for a purpose. That's the first point of discernment. That we shouldn't leave God out of the equation. We shouldn't say, well, that's my faith, but this is my life. That's my, that's my belief, but this is my country. That's my, um, uh, whatever, you know, salvation, but this is my uh, rights. That's a weird division of our souls. Every soul should be subject to authority. Why? Because God has placed them in power for a purpose. He then says this, therefore, the one resisting authority, and that's rebellion, and I don't know if you're like me, but I have a bit of a rebellious heart. That's why it's hard for me to talk about this, because I'm the guy going like, let's, let's do it. <laughs> you know, let's storm the castle. Like, I'm just that guy, and I'm, I'm saying that, like, you've laughed about it. Like, you shouldn't be laughing about it, because like that, he says every rebellious heart like that, every heart that wants to fight back over the authorities has resisted God's own arrangement and is bringing punishment on themselves. What? Bringing crimes is what the Greek says. They're putting crimes on themselves. This constant state of like willful disobedience makes our lives more difficult than it needs to be. Well, that's a couple of opening thoughts about this. So we're called to be symbolic. And you might think, oh boy, are, this is where we're going to go. Stay with me, right? Because as soon as the teaching comes here to the church about how we're to submit to authority, they begin to define what the authority is. Verse three, because rulers will bring judgment, oh, for rulers will bring no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Interesting. Rulers, it says, will bring no fear, phobos, in the hearts of those who are doing right, but only those who are doing wrong. Now that, to me, sounds like it starts to define the leadership that we're under. In other words, if your leadership and this is going to be, if your leadership is good, is after good, they're not going to be offended by good. But if your leadership has a corrupt definition of good, then the very thing they can be commanding can be not good. 
And there's an assumption in the text in verse 3, if you see it with me, because the rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. I, do you want to be free of the fear of the one who's in authority? Look at verse 4, or 3. Then do what is right, and he will commend you. He will approve of doing the right things. Now, this gets really gray all of a sudden. Because you say, well, I'm doing the right things. They're stopping me from doing the right things. And we're going to have to hold these things in tension a bit. Yes, we're called to submit, but we're called to discern. Is this right or wrong? As a matter of fact, let's just read on, and we'll hear that real quick. Verse 4, because he is God's servant to do good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. We'll come back to that in a minute. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the punishment, but because of your conscience. That means that God has given us an internal idea of what's right and wrong. And we should be paying attention to the internal idea of what's right and wrong. What, what does that look like? That's that thing in you that says, that's right. You know, you've heard some people say some things, and you're like, that's right. But then sometimes you hear people say things, you're like, that's close to right, but not exactly right. And that's a discernment thing there. That we're called to discern internally. God's given us hard discernment to determine what is good. And we're called to submit to authorities, but there's an assumption, a presumption by God that the authorities will be doing the good things and be blessing people who do the good things and will be punishing the bad things. And I can think of a whole bunch of things in our own culture and in culture on the world where authorities approve of bad things because it keeps them in power. And that's not good. So there is some complexity here. See, maybe you were thinking some of you like to submit to authority. You, you think it's just easier as peacemakers. And God bless you for being peacemakers. But there, there, there's, there's an assumption that there is good purposes for authority. I could go, I can't go rabbit trail on this too hard, but I want to think about leaders we've seen over time who've been oppressive in the Bible, such as the Pharaoh, right? Wouldn't let God's people worship. That became a point of contention. And clearly God called the people to compel the Pharaoh to let them go. But notice what they never did. They never took up arms against him. They never They said, you're going to let us go or God's going to have his way with you. And that kept happening. So there's like a righteous thread there. We have a bunch of examples like that in Scripture where the authority is being exerted, but it's not for good. But it is for good in a way because it compels people to be obedient to God and not to man. Okay? So he's a servant to do good. Don't be afraid. He's God's servant, an agent of wrath. And that's verse 4. Yes, what I'm saying. For he is God's servant to do to do good for you, but if you do wrong, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword for nothing. He's an, a, a servant, an agent of God's wrath, bringing punishment on wrongdoers. So that's one of the purposes of governance, is to punish those who are doing wrong. And God ordains that. And he's like, this is, what, this is what it's for. It's to teach discipline and teach obedience. Therefore, it's necessary to submit authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also because of your own conscience. So we have all these kind of, those two things laid out there. So authority is a servant for your good, but authority is expected to punish the wrongdoer and to reward the one doing good. And that's where we start to see things break down a little bit. We are subject to authorities, not just because we're afraid of getting punished, but because of a matter of conscience. That's the innate discernment that God has given us. And then the last thing, and I love it, we end on eight, but before we get there, we have to say, it says very clearly, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, pay revenue. What is the other one? If you owe um, uh, fear, give fear. And if you will honor, give honor. We're going to spend some time talking about honor in a minute. But isn't it interesting that taxes and revenue and fear, 
phobos are, are things that are owed rightly. Owed rightly. And that's not the only place we find it in scripture. But the last thing that's said, I'll jump into honor here for a minute. The idea of honor is that it's the value that someone gives. Honor is interesting because honor is not like fear. You fear, you automatically fear someone who's worthy of being feared, right? And that's why he says leaders aren't gonna have fear in the hearts of people who are doing good. There should be no fear in doing good in leadership on this earth. You should be no, not be afraid of doing good. But we should fear the Lord. The Psalms say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? He's the one to be feared above all else, which gives us some discernment on when we should obey, who we should obey and when. But this word honor is actually assessing a value. What's a fair price? And, and that begins to tell me that there's an idea that honor is earned in a way, that you honor those that deserve honor, that you elevate those who deserve to be, that there's a, a giving, a willfulness, a valuation that you make. It's a price that you pay to honor people. Who's worthy of honor? But the last I love so much in verse eight, owe nothing to anyone except the obligation to love your neighbor. The continuing debt to love one another because he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled all the law. That's what I heard Ryan saying this morning, that that compulsion to go out and do, to go out and serve, to go out and love is a gift of God that continues to endure. It's the only debt we owe in this life is that we would love other people. And we can interpret that as the Lord leads us to interpret what that love looks like, okay? So we're gonna go ahead and turn now to the second passage, and this is gonna be in 1 Peter First Peter 2, and we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 13. No, 11. Verse 11, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. This is what the word says. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Subject, uh, submit yourself to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Because it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone, Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. I'm going to press on a little further the text here. 18. Slaves, submit to yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Because it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it? Well, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. So we have this kind of same, did you hear the similarity between Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2? Did you hear that there's so much similar in there that we're, we're it's kind of going to repeat itself? But I want to say one thing that's different. Peter writes to the church and he says, Dear friends, I urge you to live as aliens and strangers in this world. Foreigners and exiles here, right? 
I want to spend just a minute talking about Peter's view of our life in this world, wherever we live. He says we are aliens and, so, uh, and um, uh, sojourners, or we're foreigners and exiles. We're people who don't belong, people who are on our way to somewhere else. Why is this interesting? Because what he says is live such good lives among pagans, the word is actually the Gentiles. So this instruction is to those people who were Jewish but became believers in Christ. And he says, now in this life, you're going to live as if you're a foreigner here. You know, one of the big things that the Jews were always taught was like, keep the foreigners from amongst you. Or like, don't intermingle with them, but care for them, right? And now he's saying, you've become the foreigner here. So live like a foreigner. Live like an exile. I told you one of the things that really hit me hard was when Ryan said, um, we had to keep in mind that we're still foreigners here in this country, in Guatemala. And what I heard was, I have to keep in mind, I'm still a foreigner here in the United States of America. I don't mean a foreigner that I don't belong here, I do. I mean, I've traveled, I've come back, and they say, welcome home, and I get it. But this is not my permanent home. I'm passing through. I'm on my way to God's kingdom. I'm on my way to being part of his people. And we have to always keep in mind that we are exiles and, and, and uh, um, foreigners. We're traveling through. We don't truly belong. I've told you before, one of the gifts we get as Christians is that, that thing, that, that's not right. That gut thing we get, that's not right. That's correct. That's not right. That's our experience of being a foreigner. This isn't how it should be. But we're also people who are on a journey. We're going somewhere else. The word actually says that you should live such beautiful lives. What does the word say? That they may want to, yeah. Oh, I skipped way ahead. Let's see. 12, live such beautiful lives, that, that word good there means beautiful, um, among the pagans, the Gentiles, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he arrives or the day he appears, right? And so this idea that we're called to, even in hard times to live beautiful lives that are winsome, that are beautiful to those who don't yet know God. And I'm gonna use pagans there the way they would have used it, which is like Gentiles who don't yet believe the gospel. Remember, Peter was blown away whenever Gentiles were given the Holy Spirit. And so there's this idea that they're outsiders. They don't belong, right? And so he's like, live beautiful lives in front of the people who don't yet belong so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And then he goes on to say this, submit yourselves then for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Now, the funny thing is, this authority is not the same thing as the, the last that we talked about. The authority in um, Romans 13 is a different uh, uh, rule than this. These are institutions. You could say it this way, submit yourselves therefore to every man-made institution, because that's how that reads. So the structures, the things that are put over you, right? Whether to the king, and that makes it clear, or, to the supreme, or as to the supreme authority, or to the governors that are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and, and commit those who do right. There's a couple things here I want to break out. The idea of a king is a man-made construct. The idea of a president is a man-made construct. And then it says here, the governors, the idea of a governor is a man-made construct. But we're called to submit to those constructs in some way in this life. The governor here, though, is not the governor we have. The governor here was actually sent to do the king's bidding. The king would send a governor out like a soldier, like, a, like he would command him to go out and do things with his authority. It's a little different here, but it's close. It's close. And so we have this kind of man-made construct that we're called to, to be in submission to or to, again, position ourselves under 
right? And I want to also say for a minute here that submission doesn't mean that we always bow and we always bend our, we always do. No, it means we're discerning people who recognize that we are under authority. I want to go back in a minute to the idea of honor, but before we do, let's just finish this thought. What? The same construct is upon this rule that's upon the rule in Romans 13. What? The governors are sent out by the king to what? Punish those who do wrong and commend or reward those who do right. You ever seen those, um, uh, those public things that have a press conference, they show up and the people stand up there and they give them awards, right? They put the medal around their neck and they say, good job. The governing authorities are supposed to be rewarding good behavior, good behavior. And what would be truly good behavior and sometimes that happens, and we praise God for it, and sometimes it doesn't. And we, I don't think we can praise God for those times. That people are rewarded for bad behavior should not be uh, honored by, by those who are following God. And so we have that same idea. There's an expectation they're going to be good, and they're going to be uh, punishing wrong and committing those who do right. Because it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. I love this little turn of phrase, that by doing good, you will silence the talk of ignorant man. And, and what that means, and it sounds really harsh, but it, does, it means that you are going to silence the criticism of those who don't discern what truth is. That internal discernment I said that we get in Romans 13, where you should obey out of your own conscience, for your own conscience' sake. That internal says, yes, I'm going to obey to that. I'm going to obey that. Is the same thing that the world doesn't have sometimes. And you're going to silence the ignorant talk, accusations, of those who don't discern what true good is. By what? By your good deeds. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. This is our call, church. Verse 16 then. Live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And this is why, by the way, and if I could take a minute for the church here, this is why sometimes the church gets wrapped up in all kinds of wicked stuff that they shouldn't be involved with because we think it's for the greater good. We believe that the end justifies the means. C can I just lay out a couple of things that seem super clear to me? One is that we think that every life is precious. And so we do things like we pray that abortion would end. We pray that people would not choose abortion anymore. We pray that we would celebrate life ourselves. I pray, church, that if you hear of anyone being pregnant, your first response will be praise God, even if it's a hard circumstance. I heard a story about a young baby that was born to a mother who died in childbirth just like a few weeks ago. And I had to say, praise God, the baby was born. Don't celebrate the mother dying at all, but praise God for life. But you know what's weird about that? Some people have been so passionate about the belief in babies, they start killing adults. That's not right. Doesn't your internal clock tell you that? You can't shoot one person because you're trying to save another person. That's not the way we operate. There's so many examples of this. We have to use our internal God-given discernment of right and wrong and keep it in focus. Live as free men, but don't use your freedom as cover-up for evil. That's what happens. Well, I was doing God's will. Man, right? Be discerning, church. Show proper respect to everyone, right? Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. And here's the word again. Honor the king. And honor the king. Isn't it funny that there it's articulated. It didn't say taxes and it didn't say revenues, but what did it say? Show respect. That's honor, by the way. The word there when it says honor the 
honor the king. It says honor everybody. That means that you're supposed to walk around like everyone's a king in some way, right? They deserve some honor from us. Honor everyone. What does the word say then? Love the brotherhood. That's those who believe in Christ. Fear God. And there it is. The one that we ought to be in fear of, and not fear like he's going to punish us, but like he's the most deserving of praise. He's the most deserving of obedience. And then we honor the king. We measure that out. I want to come back to honor because there's this interesting um, uh, Old Testament passage that says, honor your father and mother. If you do so, you'll be blessed and have long days. And I know some folks have a real hard time honoring their parents. They're like, well, my parents don't deserve my honor. But I, I, and the same thing with the king. Well, the king don't deserve my honor. But here's the thing. You have to recognize that you're looking through to God above. That God sovereignly has instituted these um, governors, these rulers for a purpose. And that indeed God had sovereignly anointed your parents to be parents for a purpose. And in some way, when we rebel against our parents, and I'm guilty of it, church, we rebel against the God who made them parents. See, we end up looking through. I can tell you something. One of the greatest blessings of being a pastor, I've been able to sit with people and work through things. And that's something that I learned and teach. Like working through scripture, I'm like, why do we have to honor our parents? You know, because talking to somebody about the problems they have with that. And then you recognize that he's sovereign over that, right? He's sovereign over who becomes parents. And by honoring our parents, even we don't feel like it, we end up honoring God because he is good and holy and just and has Everything works out for the good of those who love him. So we have this opportunity then to submit to the authorities, honor the king out of reverence for Christ, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, and fearing the Lord. So we're not going to spend too much time here, but then it turns. This is just time you think, okay, really after that, then it says, slaves, be obedient to your masters, and not just the good ones, but the bad ones. And he's like, because if you, if you bear up for doing, you know, for, for the good master, great. But if you bear up, if you're being persecuted when you're not doing anything wrong, what does the word say? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. So if you're going to suffer for God's cause, God, God honors that. God's blessed by that. God recognizes that. And so we can praise God at those times. Now, I want to kind of turn then in out of those two deep dives. Those were deep dives. I want to get in some practical application, and then we're going to close, right? So some practical application here. So where do we see examples of how this lived out? Because I've just told you, like, there's sometimes we submit, and sometimes that we have to discern if it's good or bad, and there's all kinds of biblical narratives about these things, right? But where are some things? There's two great passages that I want to share with you. And uh, I'm not going to turn there, and you're not going to have to turn there, but I just want to tell these stories. The first was actually, someone sent me, J.C. Harrison sent me a, uh, a video this week that was, I'm going to get this right, it was the Worldview Academy, and it was a teaching called Prudence and Jurisprudence, a webinar by Bill Jack. And I just want to give him full credit, because I hadn't thought about what Peter did, <clears throat> and this is in Acts 4 and 5, and I went and looked at it afterward. And he brought this up, and he said, Peter was forbidden from teaching in the name of Jesus Christ by the Sanhedrin, by the way, which is like a governing body of religious leaders. And they said, stop teaching in his name because people were believing in Jesus. And, and he makes a great point, Bill Jack did, made a great point of saying this. When he was told to stop preaching, he didn't stop preaching. And he also didn't thumb his nose at the authorities and say, who are you to tell me? You can't tell. He didn't get all indignant. As a matter of fact, if you look at what he did in Acts chapter 4, Peter asked them a question. They said, quit preaching in Jesus' name. And he said, who should I obey? God or, or I'm mean, sorry, who should I obey? Him or man? I'm like, who's the him? Well, the him is Jesus. So Peter asked him a question. Should I obey Jesus or man? 
about this teaching about Jesus thing. And people were obviously coming to faith in Christ, which is why they were shook up, right? And so they don't do them, they let him go. And they, they just command him, just whatever you do, don't keep teaching in Jesus' name. You can do anything else you want, but you can't do that. And you know what he does, Peter does in Acts chapter five? He goes out and keeps teaching about Jesus. So he doesn't exactly thumb his nose at authorities, but he also thinks, I, I have to be obedient. I can't be just, I, this is what I have to do. And he keeps doing what he has to do because God's called him to do it. And that's an important thing to recognize. He, God has called him to do it. And so he goes out and, and then they, they see him out and they come in and somebody says, can you believe Peter and John are still out there teaching about Jesus after we told them to stop? And when called back before the Sanhedrin, called on the carpet, threatened with punishment, Peter says, I have to obey God not man. Now see, that shows you there's a point where you come, you have to make a decision. These were spiritual leaders. They weren't civic leaders, but they were spiritual leaders. And Peter decides, I'm not going to thumb my nose at authority. I'm going to try to be compliant, but I'm not going to stop teaching about Jesus. I'm not going to stop preaching the gospel. I'm not going to stop worshiping with the birds every morning. I'm not going to stop. I can't. Famously, Martin Luther, the great reformist, um, when called on the carpet about his creating division in the church uh, and his conviction that scripture is, um, is, you know, we're saved by faith alone, he, he said something like this, here I stand and I can do no other. And people read that all kinds of ways, but I read that as you have to, out of obedience for God, you have to stand in your convictions. And so that's what Peter does. He keeps on. And then guess what? Um, I think it's Galmiel, Galmiel or something like that. One of the leaders takes him all aside and says, let's don't, let's just, you know, if it's God, it'll, it'll wash out. Let him go. And then Peter goes away rejoicing because he was what? He was found worthy to suffer for the gospel of Christ. Because <laughs> he was doing good. He wasn't using his freedom as a cover for evil. He was preaching the gospel. And no one was going to stand against that. The second comes later in Acts, Acts 16 and 25. By the way, these are two coloring sheets I gave the blast kids today, right? Acts 16 and 25. Paul, in a different way, uses his rights as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, right? So, so if you remember the story, Paul and Silas are in prison. They've been beaten, flogged, and they've been thrown in prison for being disobedient. And then in the, in the middle of their prison stay, they, um, they, they, they decide to release them. And they say, Paul, we're going to let you go. Get out of here. Get out of prison. And he says, you're not going to just release me. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm like, that's interesting. And Paul says this, you're going to walk me out. You, and it says this, when they went back and told the king that they had beat a Roman citizen, they were afraid. Why? Because Roman citizens had rights. Who is Paul? Paul's a Pharisee. He's a Jew. He's a convert to Christianity and a believer in Christ, but he's a Roman citizen. And in the moment, he could have said anything he wanted to say, and he says, you've beat me, a Roman citizen. I just want to say that to do a little correction on this idea, that while we are, it's a matter of priority, that we are Americans and we are Christians, but there's a question of what you hold in the highest regard. So are you a Christian American or an American Christian? And see, Paul would say he was a Christian Roman, right? Or he was a Roman Christian. <laughs> I said I got it wrong. But when time came, he appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen. What does this mean for us? It means that we do have rights in this country that other countries don't have, and we ought to want to defend them at times. But don't conflate it with your Christianity. 
It's our rights as American citizens. And there's no, nothing that stops us from doing what Paul did. As a matter of fact, later on in Acts 25, Paul is actually being told, you can go to Jerusalem and be tried. And he said, I stand before Caesar. I've not done anything wrong to the Jews or anyone else. And I demand to be tried by Caesar. And what's the, what's the ruler say? To Caesar you have requested, to Caesar you will go. And you know what Paul gets to do? Witness to the king. Witness to the king. Because he is going to exercise his rights as a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar, and therefore he gets to witness to those who are in charge civilly. So what does all this mean then at the end? Where do we end up? We have to stay laser-focused on what our hope is in this life. See, I've not given us any simple answers, and I don't have any simple answers either. There's times we're going to discern that we need to submit, and there's times we're going to discern that that's not right, and we're not going to be able to bend the knee to that. We're going to, and we're going to have to stand up, and our, we have to obey God and say, that's not good. And we have to work that stuff out with fear and trembling. We have to figure out what God is calling us to do in the moment. Why? Because he has a purpose for us in this life. The priority of our pecking order matters. We are American Christians. Christian being the most core identity we have. I want to finish with where we were at in 1 Peter, because I alluded to it in 21, 1 Peter 2, 21. To this you were called, why? Because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, that this life will be filled with some suffering, and we ought not be afraid of it. But look at verse 22. Jesus committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. He never lied and never sinned in all the things he was persecuted for, all of the wrong ways he was accused. You might want to check it out in the Gospel of John when he sets before um, Pilate, and Pilate says, don't you know who you're setting, talking to? Don't you know the power I have? Look at Jesus' response there, what he says. 23, when they hurled insults at him, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And instead, he entrusted himself to what? Who, him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on that tree so that we might die to sins and we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were sheep going astray, but now you have been returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your, what's the last word say? Souls. So you have to see at the end of the day that the focus we have to keep is that we are, we are people of God on a mission for God. And all things have to be sub submitted to that goal, that goal. Jesus suffered on the cross and died. Why? So we could be free. He took punishment that he never deserved so we could be free. Why should we do the same, same things, walk in his ways? Because there are those out there that don't yet know that Christ died for them and that we are part of his great message to them. We're called to be obedient to that. Christ gives up his righteousness so that we can, we can be forgiven of our sin. He gives us his righteousness and he makes us like himself, bearing our sin on the cross. This is the gospel, and it must always go forward at all costs. Why would I want you to separate these things? Because there might come a time where you have to disenfranchise yourself from your civic um, opportunities for the sake of the gospel. You might have to lay down your rights so that the gospel can go forward. Or you might have to stand up to authority and proclaim the gospel, even if it costs you your life. These are the things that were taught by Jesus if you don't know that he did this, I pray that you would, that he died for the sins that you've committed. 
He died for the sins I've committed. Listen to me. He died for the sins of those not yet born. He died for the sins of all his deceased. He gave himself so we could be free. And that's the gospel, that this gift that he's given once for all was for all sins for all time, that anyone would believe would be forgiven. This is my concern, actually. I'm afraid sometimes that my rebellion against the world is not a recognition of God, but it's sin. It's just the way I'm made. And because of that, maybe like me, you need to be forgiven for that. Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you so much this morning for the chance to explore your word and to hear what you have to say about our current situation. I pray, Lord, that the teaching would be yours and that we would rightly discern and keep the things that are of you. I do pray, Father, for our self-awareness that we would recognize in ourselves the tendency we have towards sin and rebellion. And Lord, not just in this world, but against you. Lord, we don't want to be found as people who are, who are non-compliant, non-obedient. We want to be obedient to you. And so would you help us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit if we don't know that you died for our sins, if we're still going to find our own way or prove our own worth or do our own thing, then we would just lay that junk down and, and submit to you. And then for those of us who have laid it down, that we recognize that you have good purposes for every season of life, including this one. Would you help us to take courage and move forward, to be, uh, have beautiful lives, that be great witnesses in this time. And then ultimately, like Peter, we'd be able to say, well, we obeyed God. We obeyed you. What you called us to do, submit to you, honor others, and believe and wait for your salvation coming. We love you so much. We pray this prayer in the, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.